Chapter Seven, Part Two of the Smoke Eaters by Harvey J. O'Higgins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Training Sally Waters, Part Two. Waters returned to duty on the last Friday in March. It was on the following Sunday that the Hansard building was burned. Early in the afternoon a hurricane, predicted by the Weather Bureau, whirled up from the far southwest and struck the city with the back sweep of a northeast gale that drove the rain in sheets before it, scooped it up from the gutters, tossed it in waves against the houses, and carried it breast-high along the streets, cold, solid, and stinging, like small shot. At nightfall this rain ceased, and the wind, free of the weight of water, leaped forward to the velocity of a tornado. It was ten o'clock, when a policeman on Broadway, sheltering himself in a doorway from the storm, saw the light of flames dancing in the basement windows of a wholesale clothing-house that stood on the street corner across the road. And he turned in an immediate alarm. Before the first engine companies could arrive, the sidewalk gratings were so many gridirons over a leaping fire. By the time the second alarm was answered, the whole ground floor was ablaze, and the heat had driven the pipemen back from the doors. With the third alarm, the flames burst from the roof in a stream of sparks that rose from the bellows draft of that gigantic forge, and danced in the wind up the north wall of the adjoining Hansard building, to the full height of its sixteen stories. Engines were ordered to connect with the standpipes of that building. Engine companies were rushed up the elevators with their hose to fight the fire from the windows. Truck companies were sent up with extra lines to assist them. And Company Number Zero followed last with orders to wet down the north wall from the roof. "'There's a fool job,' Captain Meaghan muttered. Corrigan and Waters reached the roof with the nozzle of a line of hose that was being laid from the standpipe of the top floor. And they came out into the night, dragging their length of line, to face a gale of wind that took the breath from between their teeth. They struggled against it, through the darkness, toward the light of fire over the parapet. And they looked down there, through the smoke, at the flames in the roof of the clothing-house twelve stories below them. Captain Meaghan, behind them, cried back to the other men, "'Start your water!' And in a moment a feeble stream swelled the line of hose and gushed from the pipe. He cursed it. "'It can't spit past its chin!' he shouted, in a passionate disgust that lifted his voice above the storm. The stream strengthened as they watched it. "'Keep wetting her down!' he shouted in Corrigan's ear. "'Get up another line!' he cried to the rest of the crew. The rushing of the wind drowned their answer, but they hurried below to obey him. He remained with Corrigan and Waters, watching the fire spread and brighten in the roof of the clothing-house, and Corrigan was still grinning at his can't spit past its chin. They were two hundred feet above the street level, and the storm, hurling itself across the huddled roofs below them, drew up a draught of heat and smoke to them as if they were looking down a chimney. They could guess what the heat must be in the street, for across the road the woodwork of the windows of a five-story building had caught fire without the touch of any flame, and a crew of pygmies were drenching it with a stream which they shot up straight from the sidewalk. Officers the size of mannequins ran up and down in the ruddy glow, waving their little arms. 
the fire flowed over the roof as if it were a burning oil and the smoke came up to them thicker and the heat more stifling with every breath their weak stream dribbled down the wall to dry out on the hot bricks before it touched the point of danger and corrigan leaned over the parapet to see that the paint was beginning to peel off in great scales far below waters and he tried hopelessly to reach these by swinging the pipe from side to side they might as well have tried to irrigate a desert with it their eyes were dry and beginning to smart the rest of the crew came up again dragging a second line no use bringing more lines up here captain meaghan shouted to gallegher windows'll be breakin there ain't a shutter on the whole blamed buildin fireproof she's matchwood back down to the twelfth floor get lines stretched to the air shaft there the men went back with their hose do the best you can up here he advised corrigan chief's orders to wet her down keep your eye open for that air shaft corrigan caught the first of these instructions but the wind carried away that last warning of danger and the captain turned and left the two men unconscious of the catastrophe that was preparing for them the air shaft in fact was acting as a sheltered flue for the flames it cut a deep groove in the wall of the hansard building at corrigan's left and the wind rushing into it rose straight aloft blowing up sparks like the cupola of a blast furnace corrigan watching only the wall and windows below him pitied the crews at work in the street he was wishing for a quid of chewing tobacco and he remembered with exasperation that waters would have none that was one of waters's social limitations he did not chew it was also one of the reasons why corrigan disliked him they had been fellow probationers at fire headquarters and the instructor having pitted them against each other in a race with scaling ladders had publicly compared corrigan to a baby hippopotamus in point of nimbleness because waters had run away from him after they had joined company number zero corrigan had found waters's conversation all hot air and free silver and had quarrelled with him about this wearisome enthusiasm for politics consequently there was no friendship between them and they continued stolidly at work now in the silence of mutual indifference the growing strength of the stream threatened to tear the nozzle from their hands and they raised the hose to their shoulders to bend it in a swan's neck arch that sent the water hissing down the bricks they were busied so when they saw a bluish-green flame flash in the red of the fire in the roof below and a belch of smoke rolled up to them on the echo of an explosion before it reached them they heard another roar beneath it the cloud of smoke was split with flame and they jumped back from the parapet as if from the crater of a volcano and threw themselves on their faces as the burning gases freed by the collapse of the roof flared two hundred feet in the air and licking up the side of the hansard building to break every window-glass in its upper ten stories and ignite every window-curtain window-sash and trim in its north wall rolled over them in a heat that nipped their ears like a frost-bite and was gone corrigan pinned down the pipe that was threshing about on the roof and staggered back to the parapet with it the beat of heat was unendurable and he could see nothing for the smoke that blinded him with tears he did not know that the gale was carrying a solid tongue of fire into the hidden air-shaft 
and that every window on that shaft was already spitting flames. He could just see that the woodwork of the window below him was afire, and he called Waters to train the pipe on it with him. They doused it black at once, and scattered the smoke to see another blaze below. Then the stream from their hose weakened and fell short, and it was plain that the crews were using the water on the lower floors. "'We're wanted down below, I guess,' Waters said. "'We're no good up here now.' Corrigan nodded. They shut off the nozzle and turned to drag the line to the door of the stairs. They were too late. Corrigan saw the blaze in the air-shaft, and cried out an oath. That shaft, he knew, lit the stairway from the ground up, and cut them off from the elevator shaft in the centre of the building. They dropped the line and ran to the door. Smoke was pouring from it, and flame was behind the smoke. Corrigan ran back for the hose, and with the water to open the way for him, fought down three steps into a blaze that could not be faced. The wind, blowing in the broken windows of the air-shaft, brought up a smother of heat and smoke against which his pipe was useless. He was fighting a prairie fire with the stream of an extinguisher. Waters pitched forward on his shoulders. Corrigan braced himself against the weight, turned to catch Waters under the armpits, and carried him up, himself half-suffocated, and laid him on the roof. They were greeted by the fierce purring of the flames. Waters groaned. "'You all right?' Corrigan asked him. He rolled his eyes. "'Let's get down out of here,' he gasped. Corrigan straightened up and looked around him. The doorway was the only entrance to the roof. He walked back to kick the useless hose down the staircase so that he might shut the tin-sheathed door on the blaze below. He went to the stone railing that surmounted the cornice on the front of the building. The coping overhung the windows in a sheer drop to the street. He hurried to the south wall. The windows there were twelve feet down, and there was no pipe, no foothold. He went to the back of the roof and found another coping. He turned and watched Waters running from parapet to parapet, now hidden in a cloud of whirling smoke, now black in the red glow of wind-blown flames. He saw him lean over the marble railing of the front cornice and put his hands in a trumpet to his mouth. He saw him take off his helmet and try to throw it down into the street, and the gale snatched it from his hand, tossed it aloft, and blew it away to the south with the smoke and the flying embers. He came running back to Corrigan. "'Let's get down,' he panted. "'Let's get down!' Corrigan did not reply. "'For the Lord's sake, Corrigan,' he cried, "'don't let's burn alive up here!' Corrigan shook his head. "'I can't get down,' he said. He could see that there was nothing on the roof to burn. The heat, and not the flame, would be their danger. The fire was at its worst in the light well. At the point farthest from it there was a huge water-tank, protected with a covering of tin, and supported across the angle of the walls on steel beams. Even if the roof should fall, the tank would not go with it. They would have water to prevent the heat from baking them to death. They would have the tank to shelter them from the drift of smoke. Corrigan went over to it and crouched down to peer under the beams. Waters stumbled against him. "'Say,' he whimpered, "'I can't, I can't get down!' Corrigan pushed him aside impatiently. "'Well, who said you could?' he snarled. "'You're up here to stay. You better make up your mind to that and shut your yap!' 
Waters threw up his arms and screamed at the sky in a high, dry voice, clutching with his fingers and snapping like a dog with his teeth. Then he pitched forward into the smoke on a run for the street parapet again. Corrigan climbed slowly up the iron ladder to the top of the tank. He came on a scuttle there and raised it, to find that the tank was almost full. He took off his rubber coat and dipped it down, and it came up dripping. He rubbed it over his face, and licked at the moisture on the smooth tarpaulin. And the touch of water sent a burning fever flush of thirst through him. He reached back with his helmet, drew it up half full, and emptied it over his head and down his back, again and again. Then he drank in great gulps, sighing with satisfaction. The relief brought back his energies. The tank ladder took his eye, and it occurred to him that if he could get it loose he might be able to reach a lower window with it. He took hold of it in his great hands, drew a long breath, and strained to wrench it from its iron sockets, tightening on it slowly until the blood drummed in his ears. He bent the upright of it, but the socket still held it. When he paused for breath he remembered Waters and shouted to him for aid. He got no answer and he descended to the roof to find Waters lying in the worst of the heat that blew from the air-shaft. He dragged him back from it, and emptied a helmet full of water on his face. Waters rolled his head from side to side, muttering to himself. "'Look here,' Corrigan said. "'Look a-here!' Waters opened staring eyes, moving his lips in a whisper. "'Better get up to the tank and take a dip. I want you to help get that ladder loose.' Waters slipped an arm about Corrigan's neck, raising himself on his elbow. "'Get me down out of this,' he whispered. "'Get me down out of this, and I'll make it good. I got a pull. I got a promise.' Corrigan threw off his arm. "'Stop talking foolish. I can't get you down. Here, take a drink.' Waters caught at his collar, knocking aside the water. "'Get me down,' he said huskily. You get me down, Corrigan. I'll make it good. I'm right in with the gang. Dorgan said— Corrigan threw him off with a curse. I can't get you down, he yelled at him. What the blank's the matter with you, you blank, blank, blank? Waters fell back and lay breathing hard, with open mouth. A puff of smoke blew down and choked him with a sob. Corrigan dragged him across the roof to the tank, and sat down beside him, uncertain what to do, with his back to the parapet and his face to the light-well. The heat swam over them in a suffocating current. Waters threw out his arms, and lay as if stretched on a cross, rolling his head from side to side, agonized and speechless. He began to mumble the confession of a Roman Catholic, beating his breast with a whispered, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Corrigan scowled. The smoke irritated him. The heat pricked him. "'Can't you shut your yap for half a minute?' he complained. Waters groaned. He asked in a hoarse whisper, "'Do you think there's any hell?' Corrigan laughed. "'Ah, oh, cut it out,' he said. "'You're scared. That's all that's wrong with you.' There was a crash of breaking windows in the air-shaft. The flames roared up, flapping like a banner in the wind. "'Help!' Waters screeched. "'Help! Help!' Corrigan clapped a hand over his mouth, and silenced him. 
Well, you lobster! Aw, don't, he pleaded, don't! Corrigan stood up in the thickening smoke and looked down at him. Look a here, he said, if you got any wind to spare, you'd better save it for your prayers. This roof's gonna drop you in a hole so hot it won't leave enough of you for hell to raise a blister on. Shut up, will ya? He turned away from him angrily, and climbed the ladder to the top of the tank, so that he might sit down there in quiet. He could hear the engines in the street whistling frantically for coal from the fuel wagons, and they sounded very far away. He reached down into the scuttle and drank from his helmet again. The air came up cool from the tank. He lay with his face in the draught of it, and shut his dry eyelids on his aching eyes. Although he had threatened Waters with the collapse of the roof, he had spoken in anger, to terrify him into silence, and not because he believed that either of them would lose his life. He was not a man of imagination, and his breath was too strong in his body for him to realize the possibility of death. If the crew below could not find some means of reaching them, he hoped to live out the fire where he was. Chiefly, he was angry, and bewildered by his own anger, because Waters had gone to pieces and made such a noise. He could not think. The heat was wearing on him. He lay there, waiting. And in fact, the crew below were already planning to reach him. Captain Meaghan had been so busy trying to keep the flames on the twelfth floor from forcing their way from the air shaft to the elevator well, that he did not think of the two men whom he had left on the roof. It was not until sparks and burning embers began to pour down the elevator well from the upper stories that the possibility of their situation occurred to him. He called two of his crew to get scaling ladders, and, leaving Gallagher in charge of the pipes, he ran to the southwest end of the building, to the farthest from the fire, and opening a window there, looked up. He could see no signs of fire showing in any of the windows above him. "'Looks all right,' he said to the men, "'but you'll have to be quick. Keep your eyes open for the windows below as you go up.' They had a coil of lifeline and two ladders. They used but one of the latter, going up together for greater speed, one man holding the other on the sill by the snap-hook of his life-belt, while he, standing upright on the window-sill, had both his hands free to raise the ladder. This made it necessary to break in the lower sash of each window with their hatchets, and at the first window they saw the wisdom of Meaghan's warning. The room was stifling with heat and smoke and as soon as they opened a vent into it, the fire showed in the darkness. At the fourteenth story, a light of flames was already glimmering behind the broken pane. The smoke poured out on them as they beat in the glass and hauled up the ladder. They went ahead, however, and while they were climbing up the wall from that window, they heard a cry below them and looked down to see the flames in the thirteenth story cutting them off. A shout of warning from Captain Meaghan was followed by a faint call from above them. They looked up and saw Corrigan peering over the edge of the water tank. Meaghan shouted, "'Come down the rope!' They looked down to see him waving to them. They looked up, and Corrigan had disappeared. The upper man said, "'We can't reach him!' They delayed for a moment, a moment that was almost fatal, for, while they hesitated, the fire burst out in the fourteenth story also. Then they tied the end of their rope around the shaft of the ladder. Each took a twist of it in the hook of his belt. They dropped. 
They slid down through the fire and smoke, blistered and blinded, to Captain Meaghan, who caught each as he came, and drew him in the window. A fireman, sent by Lieutenant Gallagher, came up shouting, ** Fire's at the elevator shaft! " They turned and ran. Corrigan had gone down to the roof to get waters, and found him lying on his face on the bricks. ** The men are comin' up the ladders," he said. Waters sprang to his feet with this new hope of life, and followed him around the tank to the parapet. And they looked down on the empty ladder, twenty feet below them, hanging in the flames with a blazing rope dangling from it into the smoke. "'Hell!' Corrigan said, disgustedly. Waters stared at the abandoned apparatus. "'I guess,' he said in a new voice. He turned back with Corrigan to the front of the tank again. There was a lull in the wind. The smoke and the flames rose up straight on all sides of them, and the bricks were warm under their feet. There was no escape now. "'We got a half a chance left,' Corrigan said. "'We can get in the tank.' Waters shook his head. "'No use. I got to cash in, I guess.' Corrigan cursed him. "'Well, I ain't,' he shouted. "'Get a hold of this ladder.' He braced himself, with a foot against the tin covering of the tank, bent his back, and tugged to loosen the ladder from its fastenings. Waters helped him. They strained and struggled with all the strength of every muscle, and the great screws in the sockets of the uprights came out slowly. Once the ladder had loosened its hold, they levered it, twisted it, and wrenched it free. Corrigan crawled under the steel beams and turned off the stopcock there. Then they both climbed aloft, lowered the ladder into the tank, and slid down, one on each side of the rungs, into the water. They drank together, sunk to the teeth. Corrigan ducked. "'You'd better tie yourself on,' he sputtered. "'We'll be eatin' smoke here before long.' The scuttle was a red square of light above them, and they could see each other's faces as pale blurs of no recognizable feature in the darkness. They stripped off their upper clothing, and bound themselves under their arms to the ladder. They could hear the crackle and roar of flames outside. There was a pecking of scattered rain on the tin above them. "'I wish I'd something to eat,' Corrigan said. Waters sighed. "'I'd like something to breathe better.' He was choking with heat and smoke. He rested his chin on a rung of the ladder. He was tired and dizzy. He seemed to be drifting on clouds of smoke, blown about in the storm and heat, a glowing spark above the flames. He heard Corrigan's voice at a great distance saying, "'Wind changed. South!' The Hansard building had caught fire at 10.45 o'clock. At midnight, the chief, fearing the effect of heat and water on the steel framework, ordered all the companies to back down to the tenth floor and leave the six upper stories to burn themselves out. They burned all night, the flames lighting the city like a huge torch held aloft above the houses. It was feared that the floors might fall and bring the roof with them. But the steel columns, girders, and floor beams had all been built around and protected with terracotta furring, the walls lined with wire lath and plaster, and the floor arches built of hard-burned terracotta blocks. There was nothing in the rooms to burn except the office furniture and the woodwork of bases, chair-rails, doors, windows, and floors. 
Daybreak found the building still standing, a smoking and blackened shell above the tenth story, with the firemen putting out the last smoulder in the gutted rooms. They fought their way up slowly from floor to floor, until by noon Captain Meaghan and a squad of his company, looking for their dead, reached the stairs leading to the roof. They found there the blackened nozzle which Corrigan had abandoned to the fire. They went upstairs, hopelessly, and burst open the door, and saw Corrigan himself, red-eyed and dripping, and stripped to the waist, sitting on the edge of the tank, beating with his heels on its sides, and singing crazy nothings in the voice of insanity. Captain Meaghan went over to him and called up, "'Where's Waters?' He winked and pointed down into the tank. "'I'm king of the castle,' he chanted. "'I'm king of the castle. I'm the—' "'What? What's Waters? Little Sally Waters? Oh, he's a spellbinder,' he said with a grin. "'He's a spellbinder, talkin' hot air. Comin' up? Come on up. It ain't as hot up here as it was.' And they found Waters, unconscious but alive, still tied to the ladder, and floating with his head between the rungs. Some weeks later, when ex-Sergeant Pym, retired on half-pay on account of his injuries, was making a social call on his old friends in the truck-house, he thought to ask for Waters. "'Him?' Gallagher said. "'Oh, he's quit the department. He's going to join the police.'" End of chapter 7 Part 2